Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! Wake Forest University is a private university that specializes in in research, and it's founded in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit Wake Forest University, but it is an absolutely beautiful campus. I actually got to play basketball there uh, one time and and was on the court. Uh, It's just a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful campus. I want to show you the University of Wake Forest mascot. Here he is. This is the Demon Deacon. Uh, In fact, Wake Forest is now called the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Uh, When they were first established and they started to have a sporting program, it was atrocious. They they never won in football or basketball. Uh, They were awful, and they didn't have a, a mascot. They didn't have a nickname. They were called the Wake Forest Football Team or the Wake Forest Baptists. Well, the history of the Demon Deacon blends tradition, sports, and religion all together. Uh, It goes back to the Roaring Twenties when a sports reporter wrote that when Wake Forest defeated at that time the Trinity Blue Devils, which we now know as the Duke Blue Devils, they beat them in football, which was unheard of. And so the reporter for Wake Forest wrote that they had won the game, quote, due to their devilish play. And from that moment on, Wake Forest had its mascot, and it is known as the Demon Deacons. Uh, Well, this morning, we're going to continue with our series on angels and demons, and today we're going to look at demons and their devilish play. Demons are creatures that are the foot soldiers of Satan's army. Demons are here to mess with you and I to play with our minds, to obstruct our walk with God, and to create overall havoc uh, in our lives. A demon is defined as an unclean spirit that seeks to possess, manipulate, and deceive people. Demons are clingy, needy, angry, tormented creatures. Now, Popular evangelical theology teaches us that in Revelation chapter 12, there was a war that broke out between Satan and God, and one-third of the angels rebelled against God, and they were cast down to earth, and that those angels now are the deacons that run this earth today. Um, However, last week, I gave you an alternate explanation about the origin of demons, Uh, And I was afraid nobody would show up after that sermon. I'm glad that you are back today. Um, If you did not see that, I highly encourage you to to watch that. Now, whether or not demons are fallen angels or some lesser creature is kind of irrelevant for our discussion today. Here's what I do know. Demons have the same intent as their leader, the devil, to steal, to kill, and to destroy And so today, what we want to do is we're going to do an overview of demonology. Uh, We're going to look at some characteristics of demons that we see in the New Testament, 
And then I want to talk to you about how demons are fighting against you right now in your life. And by you, I mean all of you, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, whether you believe the devil is real or not, because choosing not to believe in the devil does not protect you from him. Okay, so demons are here to do the dirty work of the devil. So let's look at a few characteristics of demons in the New Testament. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of scripture to take in. So we're going to have to move at a, at a, not a slower pace, a faster pace today. All right, number one, demons can derange both a person's mind and body. In other words, demons can control a person emotionally and mentally, but also physically. We have this account in Matthew chapter 17, picking up in verse 15. Um, it says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. Now, you're going to notice in some of your Bibles, uh, it'll say, my son is crazy or he is a lunatic. For often he falls into the fire, and often he falls into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they, they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Okay. So a lot of people have taken this scripture where the, the, the parents of this boy say, hey, he's suffering from seizures. He's thrown himself into the fire and the water. We think he's a little bit crazy. And, and they have taken this to imply that anyone that deals with any type of mental illness is demon possessed. And I simply do not agree with that theology. Um, I suffer from panic attack disorder and, and anxiety attacks. And I can assure you I'm not possessed by a demon. So everyone that has some type of depression or anxiety uh, doesn't mean that they are demon possessed. However, I will say this. There are probably a lot of people that we have written off as just being crazy that have been or are probably demon-possessed. Let me just give you a couple of case studies real quick. Adolf Hitler, okay? Now, a lot of us just think he was a racist and he hated the Jewish people and, and he was a little bit loony, uh, but he exterminated six million Jews. That's not just a small mental illness. I believe that was demonically driven. I, for one, believe that Hitler was possessed by a demon. Or how about Charlie Manson, Charles Manson? Um, he was responsible uh, for orchestrating and setting up uh, the Sharon Tate murders uh, and the, the murder of her unborn child. I believe Charlie Manson uh, is demonically driven. Another one, Jim Jones, the leader of the Jonestown occult. Uh, they moved to South America so that they could could not be oppressed by the government, but the government still was keeping tabs on them. And when they were closing in, they took a trough, filled it full of grape Kool-Aid and poured Sinai in it. And 909 people died, one-third of them children. There is no doubt that was demonically driven. 
So demons can absolutely ravage a person's mind. But demons can also ravage a person's body. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, he, he couldn't see and he couldn't speak, was brought to him, the him being Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So th this man had a, a demon that deranged his body so much so that he couldn't speak and he couldn't see. Jesus cast the demon out, removes the demon, and now he can see and he can speak. This is actually, I just want to say this in passing, this was a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, you may not know this, but in the time of Jesus, there were Jewish exorcists. That was their, that was their specialty. They specialized in casting demons out of people. However, these exorcists could never expel a demon from a person that was mute, that, that couldn't speak. When you study demonology in the New Testament, you find that the very first thing that the person trying to, trying to cast the demon out will do is to ask that demon to reveal himself. Who am I dealing with here? And since that man couldn't talk, they didn't know what they were dealing with, and they couldn't cast him out. But Jesus had so much power and so much authority, he didn't need to know who he was. He cast them out, and, and this changed the man's ability to be able to speak and hear and change the course of his life. But it also changed the course of Jesus' ministry. People started paying attention. This guy yields a lot of power. No one's been able to do this. In fact, look at the very next verse. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? In other words, is, is this the Messiah? Is this God's son? We've never seen anyone be able to do this. So demons can physically harm their hosts if they're in their bodies. Okay, And demons can also physically harm others through using the, the host's body. In the book of Acts, we have this strange story. Uh, we've referenced it a few times here. It's in Acts chapter 19. Verses 11 through 16. And this is in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who yielded all kinds of uh, power to cast out demons and heal the sick. Uh, let, let's read it. Acts 19, verse 11 through 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even his handkerchief or apron that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So here's the picture you have. You've got the Apostle Paul casting out demons, healing people in the New Testament as the church is getting started. You know, he, he gets hot. He wipes sweat from his brow, throws his handkerchief down. Somebody grabs that, and they're able to be healed just by, by touching that. It was an extraordinary time. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. In other words, you had these Jewish exorcists watching this, and they were seeing how easily in the name of Jesus Paul could cast these demons out, and so they, they didn't believe in Jesus. They're the ones that crucified Jesus, but they thought, you know what? We'll use the name of Jesus, and we'll use the name of Paul, and we'll be able to, to do the, the same thing. 
it gets almost comical after this. The seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So they go into this man's house and they're going to cast this spirit out of him. But the evil spirit answered them. They probably ask, who are you? What's your name? Who are we dealing with? But look what the spirit asked them. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? In other words, who are you seven clowns? What do you think you're going to do about it? Like, we fear Jesus, we know Paul, he has power, but who in the world are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them. So you had this demon-possessed man, mastered all of them. He overpowered all seven of them, seven on one, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Some of your translations say bleeding. You want to talk about some humble pie right there. This demon itself, think about it, in its spiritual form would have never been able to physically harm these seven sons of this high priest. But it was inside of a man, it took control of the man, and then it was able to attack these seven other men. So right out of the get-go, demons can derange a person's mind and their body. Number two, a second characteristic we find in the New Testament about demons is that they know the deity and the lordship of Christ. There's no mistake in their eyes of who Jesus is. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 24. This is Jesus having a conversation with demons, with this person possessed. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know. Then one of them speaks up. I know who you are, the Holy One. Of God. James informs us in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They're afraid of Jesus. They know how powerful he is. They know that he is the Lord. What's interesting is when you read the, the New Testament, the Gospels, um, there, is a, there is an exponential increase in scripture of demonic activity in other words if you were to read the old testament you'll hear about uh, evil spirits from time to time and then you read uh, the pauline epistles and peter and john's epistles you they may make may make mention of it but in the gospel era when jesus is here on earth you see demonic activity everywhere why is that well i believe it's because they knew who Jesus was. They knew he was Lord. They knew what he came to do. And so their primary goal was to stop his ministry of reconciliation. In other words, hear this. They knew they couldn't stop Jesus. They knew who, how powerful he was, but they knew they could stop people from believing or following Jesus. And so you have this rise of demonic activity when Jesus is here in the flesh. Scripture tells us there's going to be another rise of demonic activity during what we call the end times. When Jesus is about to come back for his church, for his people, we will see a rise of demonic activity because they know that he is Lord. They know the power he yields in his life. Number three, demons realize they have a destiny. They know they're eternal just like you and I. They know that they're going to 
a place that's not good like you have the hope of going. They know their destiny. Luke chapter 8, verses 27 through 31. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. It was a multiple possession, not just one demon. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in the house but among the tombs. So you've got a naked, demon-possessed man running around in a cemetery here. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. I don't think that was him speaking. I think that was one of the demons speaking. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he could break them and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered in him. 2,000 to be exact. He was possessed by 2,000 demons. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. In other words, they know their destiny. They know where they're going. Okay? And so if you have a desperate, evil entity who knows there's no hope of anything good in their life, that is the most dangerous creature that you can encounter. They have nothing to lose. They want to drag as many people to hell with them. So they know their time is limited. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to t torment us before the time? In other words, they know in the end times they're going to be cast into hell. But they're wondering, are you going to go ahead and, and cast us into, into this prison, this abyss where the fallen angels are now? They know what their destiny is. All right, so those are some characteristics in the New Testament of demons. Now I want to talk to you specifically about how demons operate against you personally. They operate against every single one of us. What are their tactics? What do they use uh, against us. All right, number one, we'll start with the simplest form of demonic activity on the face of the earth, temptation. Demons are responsible for temptation. Now, one of the things about Satan is Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time like God. He can be at one place at one time, okay? And so you've got these, these demons who do his bidding, who do the tempting, it is not God the Father that tempts us as some type of test to see if we pass, right? Listen to what James says in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, God doesn't tempt us. He's good. He's holy. We're tempted by these evil spirits who are incredibly smart. And here's what I want you to understand. They know your weakness. They know my weakness. Some scholars believe that every family or every person has a demon assigned to them. And that demon knows you inside and out. He knows what makes you tick. He knows where your sin struggles are, right? And so they know our vices. And they tempt us 
And make no mistake about it, they use the information about us to tempt us. Kind of like the, the largest freshwater turtle in the United States is the alligator snapping turtle. Uh, it's found primarily here in the southeastern United States. Uh, these turtles can reach up to weights of 250 pounds. They're absolutely carnivorous. Uh, they eat mostly fish, but they're not picky. Any kind of flesh that they, they can find, they'll, they'll eat it. But they have a unique way of catching their prey. They'll float or sink down to the bottom of a river, and they'll open their mouth as wide as they can. And they have this little pink tongue that wiggles. It looks like, a, like some kind of worm or the flash of a fishtail. And a fish will see that, and the fish will go down thinking it's going to get a meal and when it goes down to grab that, you know, that tongue, snap. That's why it's called a snapping turtle. It snaps its mouth shut and bye-bye little fishy, right? Well, I, th I think this is similar to the temptation that we deal with, right? It comes in the guise of something desirable. Oh, this looks good. I want this. I want to do this. And then it leads to destruction in the end, right? Right, so if we could see the end result of our temptation rather than the temptation part itself, we would be far less likely uh, to get ourselves tangled up in sin. But see, Satan is clever. His band of demons are clever. He and his demons know this. So they cleverly disguise what is deadly in the guise of something that's pleasurable. So temptation is one of the tools in the toolbox that demons use against you. Second tool is this, obsession. Obsession. Obsessive thoughts. Those thoughts that one might not be able to get out of their head. It's just obsession over and over again. You cannot get it out of your mind. Okay, and so you can use all kinds of things for a case study in this. Think about a person who struggles from alcoholism. They may have been clean for one, two, five years, but they can't stop thinking about a drink. It's obsessive. They're thirsty, and, and, and nothing is going to quench it uh, like a beer or like a glass of wine. Uh, you know it ultimately is going to destroy you, but you can't get that thought out of your mind. That's obsession. Or how about this one? The worry wart in here. No matter how good life is going, you know the other shoe's going to drop. And so you obsessively worry about every little thing, even things that are outside of your control. And so you don't sleep good at night. You know, it's that night when you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and your mind is like running a marathon and you can't go back to sleep because you're obsessing and worrying over things that you have no control over. See, it causes you to worry and to doubt and to fear. Kill, steal, destroy. Your obsessive worry has killed your joy, stolen your peace, and destroyed your hope. One more. Perhaps you're married, and someone has caught your eye at work. And you've caught in their eye, and so flirting ensues. You know you shouldn't. You know you're a married man. You know you're a married woman. But you can't stop thinking about them. It's obsessive. When you wake up, they're the first person you think about, not your spouse. 
When you go to bed, they're the last person you think about, not your spouse. You just obsess. What are they doing? Who are they with? They're always on your phone, always checking. Are they reaching out to me? And you think about them. You even begin to dream about them. You fantasize what it would be like to leave your spouse and be hitched to them. Obsession. You see, a huge part of the demonic ministry is to get us to obsess over these types of things. That's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Now, before we get to 2 Corinthians, I want you to understand, he's talking about the same spiritual warfare that is, is mentioned in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. All right, and Alan Cox preached on this a couple weeks ago. This is the same thing he's talking about. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. All right, we're not battling things that are seen. We're battling things that are unseen. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That phrase strongholds there is talking about demonic, worldly strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's the money phrase. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, Paul is saying, listen, we're stuck in the flesh, but the great battlefield over sin is in our mind. That's where it starts. And we've got to take these thoughts captive because if we don't take these thoughts captive and make them submit to Christ, we have the propensity to obsess over things that are ungodly, unholy, things that would, would harm us. And demons will put obsessive thoughts in our minds. I think all of us has probably experienced that at one time or another. And so Paul's saying we need to be alert. These obsessive thoughts are not from God. They're directly from demonic influence. So you've got temptation, obsession, and then number three, oppression. Demonic oppression. Demonic oppression is when you have demons fighting against you, not possessing you from the inside out, but from the outside in. They're pressing down on you. They're oppressing you from the outside. They can take away your health. They can take away financial security and stability. They can get into your marriage and oppress that marriage and steal the joy and the romance, just pressing and pressing and pressing against us. There's an Old, an Old Testament and a New Testament example. The Old Testament uh, prototype would be Job. Remember, Satan was allowed to rain down fury on him. He lost his kids. He lost his health. He lost his uh, all of his riches, uh, I mean, it was just awful. He was being oppressed by Satan and his evil spirits. The New Testament example that I would give you would be the Apostle Paul. Read you a strange passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Paul says, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given in my flesh, something physical, that bothered him, a messenger of Satan to harass me. This is, here's this oppression to keep me from becoming conceited. It bothered him so much that three times he said, I pleaded with the Lord about this. Three times that it should leave me. 
But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's all kinds of conjecture to what this thorn was in Paul's side. Uh, a lot of people think he had a really bad case of malaria. Uh, some people think it was his, um, his eyesight. He couldn't see. Some people uh, think that his, his face and his body was incredibly deformed. He was almost stoned to death outside of Lystra. We don't know. We just know that there was some type from a messenger of Satan, some type of physical oppression on Paul. Now, I don't put myself in Paul's category at all, but I, I, I will be honest with you. As a pastor, I deal with this type of oppression all the time. I barely sleep on Sunday nights because the de- I've got voices saying, you shouldn't have said that. You, you're not worthy. No one came up to be saved. You might as well just step aside and let someone else take over. You, you, you're doing a terrible job. I've had, uh, I believe, demonic oppression against my health against my peace of mind, against my family. And the only thing that I have found that works, as simplistic as it sounds, is prayer. I just pray to God and say, listen, I I can't listen to these voices. I can't handle this. You're going to have to take this. And he does. It's very effective. And I encourage you, if you're feeling some type of oppression, to call out to the Lord. Now, let me say this. All three of these tactics, temptation, obsession, and oppression, are used against all humans. Whether you're a follower of Christ or you're a God-hater, all three of these tactics are used against us. Christians are tempted. Christians can become obsessed with certain sin struggles. Christians are oppressed by demons, as are non-Christians. But then there's this fourth tactic that demons use. And this is the one that all of us are probably most familiar with. This is the one that uh, we, we, we like to talk about, especially this time of year. Demonic possession. When an unclean spirit finds its way inside of you, it possesses you. It enters a person, and it's able to gain control of that person's thoughts and actions. When a person is demonically possessed, he or she suffers from a complete seizure of their personality by a diabolical being. They take control. And this allows the demon to dominate that person, allowing them to become even somewhat physically that demonic being. And so we're pretty familiar with demonic possession, but I I think some of it's been skewed a little bit due to Hollywood. Um, Over the last few decades, we have become absolutely intrigued with demonic possession. And there's a lot of movies that have come out over the years that deal with demonic uh, possession. In 1973, some of the you old-timers in here you might remember The Exorcist. You remember that movie? Little girl got possessed, all right? I saw that movie when I was like seven. I don't know why my parents let me watch it, and it, I didn't sleep for weeks, all right? That's a, that's a, that is actually based on a true story, loosely based on a true story as Hollywood takes many liberties because it actually didn't happen to a little girl named Reagan. And by the way, I didn't name my daughter Reagan after, after her, 
Um, you can do the math. All right. It wasn't, it wasn't about a little girl named Reagan. It was actually a little boy named Roland. A true, true life story. It really happened. Now, in the story, it wasn't as sensationalized as it is in the movie. Roland didn't live in Washington, D.C. They were from St. Louis, Missouri. There was no 360-degree head spin. He wasn't spewing out green ectoplasm or levitating over his bed. However, he was full of unexplained bruises and scratches and demonic voices. And he had far more power than any little boy ever should have. And the demon was eventually cast out. And Roland, last name we don't know, they're trying to protect him. He lived a normal life after that. If, he were, if he's still alive today, he'd be in his early 80s. Or how about the movie in 2005? The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Also based on a true story. Didn't happen here in America, though. Didn't happen in modern times. It happened in the 70s in Germany. It's the actual experience of a little girl named Annalise Mikkel. Okay? Annalise Mikkel had some severe trauma when she was younger, uh, some demonic Ouija board type of, of stuff that went on, and she became possessed. In fact, the next picture here is, is actual pictures of her mother holding her down during one of these failed exorcisms. Um, you can go on YouTube, and from like 1973 to 1976, they have the, the actual audio of... The, the tapes of them trying to perform an exorcism on her. Very disturbing. There's a lot of profanity, but it's in German, so you'll never know. Um, but the voice that you hear coming from her is, is not the voice that a little eight- or nine-year-old girl makes. Movies like The Right in 2011, also based on a true story. So you have, we have these movies that kind of sensationalize demonic possession, and what that does is it, it causes a lot of people to go, that stuff doesn't happen. Demonic possession's not real. I mean, look at that movie. That, that, that's crazy. Um, I have been around it. I have seen it. It is real. I guarantee you it is real. The, the Gospels, the four Gospels, and the book of Acts are full of demonic possession encounters. And they still happen today. There are people that are controlled by these evil, unclean spirits that have nothing but evil intent to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So the question I get asked all the time as a preacher is this. Pastor, can I become possessed? Can a demon enter into me and, and take over my body? I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I've surrendered my life to Jesus. Is it possible for demonic possession to, to happen to me? The, the answer, in short, is this. No. I don't believe it is possible. You see, a person who's saved has Jesus Christ living in their hearts. Demons are not permitted to live and cohabitate with Jesus Christ. If you're a true follower of Christ, demonic possession, I believe, is not possible. Now, I'm going to rattle these off quick. Let me just give you a few scripture references, too. Uh, and this is just a case study of many, many scriptures. Hebrews 1.14, Paul says, Are there not all ministering spirits, that's angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
ministering spirits or these angels. We have angels that are ministering to us if we're truly saved. These angels are here to guard us from things like demonic possession. Look at Psalm 37 or 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Or how about Psalm 91, 11? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. How many of you have ever heard of a guardian angel before? Okay. Jewish theology teaches that every person has a guardian angel and a demon. So you, you remember those cartoons where you had a devil and an angel on your shoulder? All right, That's where they get that from. But you have these angels that are guarding you in your ways. Just go to the New Testament, 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We're not talking physically here. The evil one can touch you and give you cancer and make you... We're talking spiritually. They can't get inside of you. They cannot touch your soul. A couple more, Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him... You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You're sealed by God. Uh, how I interpret that scripture is, listen, the demons can tempt you. They can cause you to obsess. They can oppress you from the, on, from the outside, but they cannot possess you. Because you're a child of God, you don't need to walk around worried about be, becoming demon-possessed. Because you and I belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is the ultimate discourager to the thought that a demon can possess a Christian because the bottom line is this. If you are already a Christian, you're already possessed. You're possessed by God. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit residing in us. I love this illustration. I'm stealing it from Louis Giglio. Those of you watching online, you might as well just turn on one of his sermons. You're going to get better preaching than me. So Louis Giglio used to walk around and do this sermon, and he carried his bottle with him everywhere he went, bottle of water. And he, he travels all over the country. And he would often say, yeah, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the Chattahoochee River. You know, way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. All right. And he said, so I brought, a, I brought something with you. I've brought the Chattahoochee river with me and then he would go on to say now listen this isn't all of the Chattahoochee River but everything in this bottle is all Chattahoochee River you and I have God residing in us all of God could not fit in us we would explode but every bit that's inside of our heart is all God I believe it's impossible for a true believer in Jesus Christ to become demon-possessed. One more. We're running out of time here. 1 John 4, 1 through 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You can be tempted. You can obsess. You can be, you, you can be tempted. You can obsess. You can be oppressed. But Jesus lives in you. And there's no rooms for demons' possession. John G. Patton, no relationship to the great general. John G. Patton was a missionary to the South Sea Islands. Now, he worked in, in very dangerous conditions there. He was trying to minister to the hostile aborigines um, who had never heard the gospel. It was a very dangerous situation. And at one time, three witch doctors came to him, claiming to have the power to cause him to die. And they publicly declared their intentions that they were going to use sorcery. And before the next Sunday, George or John G. Patton would be dead. Well, in order to carry this out, though, they said they needed some food that had been partially eaten by him. So Patton just went and got three plums, took a bite out of each one of them, and gave each one to the witch doctor and said, do your best. The next Sunday, the missionary entered the village with a smile on his face and a spring in his step. He wasn't dead. The people looked at each other in amazement thinking that it, it couldn't possibly be him. Then the sacred witch doctors admitted that they had tried all their incantations to kill him. And when asked why they failed, they simply replied that his God must be stronger than theirs. And from that time on, the walls fell down, his influence grew, and he won many, many people to Jesus Christ. So again, if God dwells in you, there is no chance of demonic possession. But here's the question I want to end with today. Are you full of God's Spirit? Does or is God dwelling in you? Have you repented of your sins, those things you obsess over? Have you confessed, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not just some great prophet that walked the earth, but the actual incantation of Jesus, of God himself. Have you been immersed? Paul says when we're baptized, we're buried with Christ. We're putting our old self off and we're rising to walk a new life. Do you have God's spirit in you? We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website, at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.